Well, join me in John chapter 16 this morning. John chapter 16. We are looking at verses 23 through 28. Again, picking up where we left off last week, John chapter 16, verses 23 through 28, where Jesus is winding down his final farewell to his apostles. And in so doing, he is fixing their minds on one of the most important gifts he will be leaving them. It's the gift of prayer, specifically the privilege to pray directly to the Father. And as we saw last week, it's not only an important lesson for these men to learn, but it is an important lesson for us to learn. For these men, in a matter of moments, everything is about to change for them. Everything will change. For three years, whatever trouble these apostles had faced, whatever questions they had, whatever fears they felt, they could always turn to their side and see Jesus. He's always right there besides them. They could turn in for answers, for solutions, for peace. But a massive change is coming. And for the last four chapters, Jesus has been telling them that he is leaving them. It's why they were confused at the end of chapter 13. It's why their heart was troubled at the beginning of chapter 14. And there will be one question that will be on their minds once they see Jesus arrested and crucified, buried, even ascended. One question on their minds, it is this, where are we going to turn? Where are we going to turn now? And Jesus' answer is profound. His answer is this, though I'm leaving you, you will not lose access to me. In fact, you will gain access to the Father. Look at verse 23 for a moment. 1623, this is what we see here. Ask the Father for anything in my name. I'm leaving you But again, do not fear. You will be able to approach the Father in my name based on my reputation, clothed in my righteousness. It's repeated in verse 26. Ask, implied ask the Father. Again, in my name, because of my merits. My name is now your name. And the promise is for all who come to the Father in Jesus' name, the Father will open heaven's gates for our words to enter. That's the promise. The Father will allow our confessions to reach his ears, our requests to reach his throne, our praises to be received. Yes, they're leaving or they're losing Christ, but they're gaining access to the Father. A question that is often asked is this, does God turn his ears to the prayers of unbelievers? It's a question that's often asked. The answer is no. The answer is no. God only hears, God only answers the prayers of those who come to him in his son's name. That's what we see here. We must be clothed with the son's righteousness. We must be reconciled to the father through the son's death. But for those who have come to Christ in saving faith, the Father's throne room is wide open for us. And he welcomes us gladly. 
Now, as we come to this passage, understand Jesus' teaching here bookends his ministry quite well. Because prayer, from the moment Jesus has arrived on the scene, prayer has been an essential topic of his teaching and a practice of his life. Think of how Jesus began his ministry. It's in Matthew chapter 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first sermon that he preached. Well, in chapter 6, we read this. When you pray, you are not to pray like the hypocrites, verse 6, but you, when you pray... And then Jesus gives practical instructions on how to guard against hypocritical prayers. Verse seven, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition. Verse nine, pray then in this way, followed by that outline of prayer. It's then followed up in chapter seven, verses seven through 11, with parables, Jesus teaching just how important prayer is. He's focused on the need of prayer, the particulars of prayer. And that's early on. And then when you move and trace the life of Christ, you see the teaching moves into action. From teaching on prayer, Jesus now has the practice of prayer. Think of Mark 1, after day of miracles, day of miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons. Jesus gets up early in the morning while it was still dark, He leaves the house. He went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Matthew 14, after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Luke 9, he took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Even look at chapter 17 of John, where John will record one of Jesus' prayers. It's the most personal of prayers. It's the longest account of Jesus praying, 26 verses of inter-Trinitarian communion between the Son and his Father. And he begins by praying a prayer of submission to the Father, and then praying for his apostles, and then even praying for us. In fact, prayer was such an integral part of Jesus' life that the apostles could not help but ask him to teach them how to pray So they heard his teaching to the crowds. They saw his praying. And so in Luke 11, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. We need this in our lives. It's amazing to consider God in human flesh submitting himself in prayer to his father and doing that consistently throughout his life. And so he set the pattern of prayer. He taught the particulars of prayer. He lives out the model of prayer, which leads us then to this passage. This passage, some of his final words, where Jesus now concludes his ministry by focusing on the privilege of prayer. The privilege of prayer. What motivates us to pray what should cause us to confess whatever reason we do not pray. And we all have our reasons. What should motivate us to stop the busyness of our lives in order to cast our cares upon our Lord and offer him our praise and even intercede for one another. What's the motivation? 
And that's what Jesus does here. He gives five motivations to pray. Five motivations for his apostles to not stay silent once he leaves them. Five motivations that show us just how much a privilege prayer truly is. We looked at the first three motivations last week. You remember them. Motivation number one. Motivation one. We pray. Why? Because prayer has been purchased by Christ on his cross. That's why we pray. Prayer has been purchased by Christ on his cross. And we saw that in verse 23. Jesus sets the timing of this promise in that day. So there's a connection then between what Jesus has just said in verses 16 through 22. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, a connection between that and what he will teach on in verses 23 and following. So we put it this way, prayer is a cross-bought privilege. To put it another way, prayer is not some cheap commodity. It costs Jesus everything. It led into motivation number two. We pray because we have the listening ear of our heavenly father. We have the listening ear of our heavenly father. Verse 23 again, ask Specifically, the Father. It's astounding here. Jesus' Father is now our Father. Again, astounding. Because of Christ's cross, transcendent, holy, holy, holy God has been brought near to us and he listens to us. Led into motivation number three. We pray because prayer is a divine means to experience supernatural joy. This is God's vehicle for blessing his people. We saw that at the end of verse 24. Every answer the Father gives us to any prayer we offer him, verse 24, is so that our joy may be made full. Prayer is not meant to be drudgery. Let's be honest, often it is. Now, this is a divinely ordained vehicle to instill supernatural joy to the lives of God's people, a gift of grace. How does this happen? Well, prayer is God's way of reminding us that he is our never-faltering refuge. So when we pray, we're remembering Psalm 62.2. He only is my rock. That's why I'm turning to you. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Prayer reminds us of that. It's a way we confess that. Prayer reminds us that God will always sustain us by his grace. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Prayer reminds us that even God's no is for our good. Even God's no. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. However, God answers our prayers. It is always for the purpose of our joy. Those are the first three motivations. It brings us to the final two motivations Jesus offers 
his apostles here. It's in verses 26 through 28. Read them. Read the verses with me. Verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. There's two more motivations in those three verses, telling us why prayer is a privilege, why prayer is not drudgery. It's a gift of grace. Here's motivation number four. Motivation number four, why is prayer such a privilege? Because our heavenly father loves us. Our heavenly father loves us. And this certainly was implied since the beginning of the passage. Love is certainly embedded in the title father. But now in verse 26, Jesus makes his father's love for his people explicit. There's no doubt here. Start in verse 26. In that day, again, the day of Christ's resurrection, his ascension, the giving of the Holy Spirit to us, in that day, you will ask in my name. You will pray. And pray as I commanded you to pray. I'll be gone, but you gain access to the Father And you'll come to the Father based upon my merits, clothed in my righteousness. Now what Jesus adds, it's an interesting statement. I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. This is what Jesus has done for these apostles for the last three years. He's brought their requests for them to his Father. They would ask Jesus... Jesus would pray to the Father. He was their go-between. But now Jesus says, all of that's changing. You don't need an intermediary to approach the Father. You can now ask the Father directly. And notice what he adds here. Jesus says, I don't need to coax the Father to receive you. I don't need to coax the Father to hear you or answer you. I don't need to persuade the Father to show you grace and mercy. I do not need to request of the Father to give you access to him on your behalf. I do not have to do that. And just put this in the context of today's Roman Catholic system. Roman Catholic system teaches that you must go through a priest to get to the Father. Or you need to ask Mary to have your requests heard, or you need to pray to some saint, right, to find something. That saint needs to grant you permission to be heard. Jesus says no to all of that. Once I die for sin, Jesus says, and once my righteousness covers you, once the Spirit indwells you, you have direct access to my Father. There's no coaxing required. Now, the question is why. The question is how. How is this possible? It's because of the next six words. They are the most profound, the most unbelievable words you will ever read in the Bible. 
Verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. For the Father himself loves you. Let's put it in the words of one commentator. We are heard because we are loved. And I will venture to say that for some here, for some here, by saying these words, for the Father himself loves you, you are beginning to feel a bit uncomfortable because you're a theologian. And you know that God is holy, 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 and he is king. And so to hear that he loves us, this is making God and bringing him a little too close to us. Sounds a bit off, right? He's transcendent king, but now he's being domesticated, dishonored even. Love seems too base for the self-sufficient, sovereign God. Yes, certainly, God is father. Yes, we say that, we pray that, our father. But he's our father in the sense of creator, father in the sense of, of king and source. But not a loving personal, intimate, caring, compassionate, Abba, Father. Or maybe you're here and you might feel uncomfortable because you're afraid the church is going off the rails right now. Right, we're swinging the pendulum. Right, we're going the Rob Bell side of things where God is only love, right? And love wins. And that's gonna be the book of the month next month. Like Rob Bell, love wins, don't worry about that. <laughs> or maybe you're thinking of your own sinfulness. You know yourself. And you cannot even comprehend why God would love someone like you. Well, Jesus understands these tensions. This is why he reminds his apostles of God's love throughout this entire night. This is consistent. John 14, Jesus says, he who loves me, here's the promise, he who loves me will be loved by my father. Holy God, transcendent king, sovereign, he will be and is that loving father. It's repeated in chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, my father will love him. And how personal, how special is this love? How intimate, how close? Well, Jesus says, we, both the father and the son, we will come to him and make our abode, our home with him. How much closer can you get? These are astounding words. In fact, 60 years later, John was still overwhelmed, still shocked, as we should be, still shocked that God was his loving father and that he was the recipient of transcendent God's fatherly care. He was shocked. Listen to 1 John 3. He says, see, behold, be amazed at this. It's an outburst of wonder and awe. How can this be? See how great a love. More literally, see from what country. This is alien love, otherworldly love. See how great a love. 
Next two words, the father. That's the shock here. The father has bestowed on us. Here, the wonder from John's pen. In 1 John 1, John wrote, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. He's holy, holy, holy. But now John writes, that holy one loves the unholy ones. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we, so unholy, so undeserving, so finite, so powerless, would be called what? Children. That we'd be called children of God. There's a pit we can certainly fall into by emphasizing the love of God to the detriment of his holiness, certainly. But we can also fall into error if we do not emphasize the depth of God's love for his people. If God is only holy, 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 there's an error we can fall into. And God is not shy about his love for his own. He is not shy about this. Psalm 103, the Lord abounds in loving kindness. Psalm 36.5, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Indeed, this is abounding love, extending love. Think of Ephesians chapter one, where we are told that the Father has an eternal love for us. An eternal love. In love, the Father predestined us to adoption as sons. Think of 1 John 4, where we are told the Father has a saving love for us. In this is love, that he, the Father, loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love, saving love. Ephesians chapter 2, where we are told that the Father has a regenerating love for his people. But God, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Why does God change your heart? It's because he loves you. Romans 5, we're told that the Father has a giving love. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What greater gift of love could be given? He gives us his spirit. Romans 8, we are told the Father has a permanent love for us. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. This is abounding love, certainly. This is heaven-extending love. This is eternal, saving, giving, permanent love. He's not shy about it. And Jesus' point in verse, verses 23 through 28 here is this. This love the Father has for us is prayer-welcoming love. It's prayer-motivating love. He has a special love for his people. It is true, God loves the world. That is true. But the Father has a special and abiding love for his children. 
And it is a love for us, not because of any inherent goodness in us. That is not why the Father loves us. That would be a distortion of his love. In fact, that wouldn't be love at all. Because if he loved us based upon our goodness, then we would continually live in fear that God might what? Remove his love. We know ourselves. That's not love. Now, the Father's love for us is because we, through faith, have been united to his Son. And thus, here's how otherworldly this love is. The Father's love for his Son now overflows onto his people. The Father's love for his Son overflows to us. Think of Jesus' baptism. This is my, who? Beloved son. We are now beloved children because of our union with Christ. That's the union that Jesus refers to in verse 27. Why does the father love us as he loves his son? Why would the Father lovingly welcome his apostles, extended out us, believers, welcome us to his throne in prayer? Why? Finish verse 27. Because, Jesus says, you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. It's the faith that unites us to the Son so that the Father's love for his Son overflows to his people. This is special, intimate, prayer-welcoming, fatherly love, and it is enjoyed, listen, it is enjoyed by only those who have come to Christ in saving faith. And notice how Jesus describes faith here. Faith is described as love for him. Love for him. It's a heart that has been changed by the spirit. This is not flippant, fleeting love. This is a settled love of Jesus, for Jesus. How do you know if the spirit has changed your heart? You love Christ. To which Jesus then adds, saving faith also is a heart that believes him. You've loved me. You've believed I came forth from The Father, faith believes. Again, a settled conviction. We believe that Christ came forth from the Father. We believe that he is the eternal son of God in human flesh. We believe that he came from heaven to earth. We believe everything Jesus claimed about himself. We believe that. We love the son. We believe the son. That's the faith that connects us, unites us to Christ. Saving faith consists of right doctrine. We believe who Jesus is. We believe what he came to accomplish. But saving faith will always show itself in a changed life, a life of love, first of all, to God, to the Son, a life of love for others, obedience because of that love. And the promise for all who have that uniting, saving faith, again, is this. It cannot be overemphasized enough. The Father loves you. But that's not enough. 
The father loves you just as he loves his son. Just let that sink in. The father loves you just as he loves his son. And you think, where are you getting that? I mean, that's idolatry. Well, we're getting it from Jesus. Turn to chapter 17, verse 23. Notice what Jesus prays. You, verse 23, you loved them. Speaking of all believers here, we see that in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of only these alone, just the apostles. No, I'm expanding my prayer out for those who believe through their word. This is for us. You love them. What's the extent? Even as you have loved me. Astounding words. Repeated, because Jesus knows, his apostles are listening, Jesus knows the apostles will say, certainly we misheard. Verse 26, the love with which you loved me may be in them. Your love for me is your love for them. How much more special and deep and permanent and irrevocable and caring can you get? Again, let this sink in. Because of our union with Christ through faith, the Father's love for his own Son now overflows to us, and thus we as his children, we now have the rights And we have the privileges as Christ does. Which is why back in chapter 16, Jesus now says we can come to the Father in prayer. What Jesus does in chapter 17, we can do. Again, why pray? Why pray? Because your heavenly Father loves you as he loves Christ. And when you begin to apply this fatherly love to prayer, you cannot help but feel just how motivating this is, how much of a privilege this is. The applications are endless. I'm gonna give you three. You can add a hundred more. They're endless. Here's the first application we can draw from these words. Application number one is this. Because the Father loves us, we never need to hesitate to pray. We never need to hesitate to pray. I know you felt this. There are times that we fear prayer. There's a variety of reasons for that. Sometimes it's because of sin in our life. So we hide from God by not praying. It's foolish, but that's what we try to do. Sometimes we're hesitant to pray because we have no idea what to pray or how to pray. Sometimes we hesitate because our faith is faltering. Our hearts are filled with doubts about something. And in all of those instances, we don't want to disappoint, quote unquote, disappoint God. We don't want to show our weakness. We don't want to admit our failings. So we stay silent. 
Well, all of that changes when we remember the fatherly love of our God. Michael Reeves puts it this way. It may be that your heart is cold, your love is weak, and your prayers are shabby, and we all say, we've been there. But what matters is that united to Christ and in him, you are a cherished son. And your father delights to hear you. He delights in our confession of sin. He delights when we come to him and we say, we have no idea how to pray or what to say, except your will be done. He delights in that because he loves us. Second application. We can draw here from the Father's love, second application, we do not need to earn a hearing from our Heavenly Father. We do not need to earn a hearing from God. He's not a boss we need to impress. He's a Father who loves, and our access to Him, connect this to what we saw in verses 16 through 22, our access to Him cannot be earned by us. Why? Because it was earned by Christ. We come because of Christ's reputation, not our own. We do not need to earn a hearing from God. And then third, because of the Father's love for us, we can trust that every answer to prayer we receive from him is for our good. It goes back to what we saw last week. But I bring this up again because Jesus makes the connection between the Father's love and him always giving to us what is good and right and best. The connection is made in Luke chapter 11. It will be on the screen. Listen to what Jesus says. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. This is not your best friend here, okay? I cannot get up and give you anything. But listen to Jesus' application. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yeah, because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. This is the worst friend that you can have. <laughs> He'll answer the door because you keep knocking over and over and over again. Finally, he says, here you go, just leave, right? Get out of here, go home. But when it comes to God... He's not a sinful friend like this. He's a heavenly father. And so Jesus now makes a contrast and he continues. He moves from a friend and not a good friend to a father. Verse 11, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Of course not, that's ridiculous. Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? Of course not. Again, ridiculous. Why? Because we love our children. Application. 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will your heavenly Father give? And Matthew adds here, what is good? Give what is good to those who ask him. He loves us. If earthly fathers will do this, how much more the heavenly loving Father Because of the father's love for his son that overflows to his people, we can trust that every answer to prayer we receive is for our good. Every answer from God. And like I said, you can add a hundred more applications. But the point is this, you will be motivated to pray to the extent that you cherish God's love for you. You'll be motivated to pray to the extent that you cherish God's love for you. The answer to prayerlessness is not to be reminded of the duty of prayer. The answer to prayerlessness is to be reminded of the love of the one to whom we pray. John Calvin put it this way, the son gives us his name to pray in so that we pray as him. That eternal love relationship between the father and the son is what we have been brought in to enjoy. And in prayer, that's what we do. We must believe the most high, transcendent, sovereign. We must believe the most high is our loving father. And that is prayer. How would you define prayer? Here's how Calvin defines it. That is prayer, relating to the Father as our Father. Leads to a final motivation. Motivation number five. Why pray? Because we are not alone when we pray. We are not alone when we pray. Notice how Jesus ends this section on prayer and we're going to relate what he says in verse 28 back to his promise of prayer. They're all related. Everything's related here to prayer. Verse 28, Jesus says this, I came forth from the Father. That's the incarnation of Christ. I left my face-to-face relationship with my Father to purchase this gift of prayer for you. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world, the sinful world. This is Christ's humiliation. I died for you. I died for you to merit your acceptance by the Father to open heaven for your petitions. I am leaving the world again, Jesus says. This is now his resurrection and ascension. I'll confirm that the Father will hear you based upon my death and resurrection and my ascension. It's confirmation that the Father will hear us. But then Jesus adds one more statement. So key for our prayer life, and Jesus is going to, he says, I'm going to the Father. This now speaks of Christ's session, his session when he sits at the Father's right hand. 
And why is this going to the Father? Why is being seated at the right hand of the Father so important to our prayer life? It is because as he sits next to his Father, he is praying for us. And he is interceding for us. What we see him do in chapter 17, he continues to do for us in glory. And so we are not alone when we pray. We might not know what to pray or how to pray, but we are joined by Christ in prayer. Listen to Romans 8. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the Father's right hand. And what is he doing? He is interceding for us, praying for us. Or Hebrews 7, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. And what saving work is the writer of Hebrews focusing on? It's not death. It's life. It's ascension. It's intercession since he always lives to make intercession for them, for us. Christ's saving work for his own is not yet done. It is true. Christ made full payment for our sin. There's no other payment that needs to be offered. Full payment. But Hebrews 7, the saving work that Christ is involved in now is the work of intercession, praying us home. I love how Mark Jones puts it. He writes this, there is no Christian alive who has not had Christ mention his or her name to the Father. That is staggering. Indeed, if you are a Christian, it is precisely because the Son presented your name to his and now your Father. By interceding, he not only draws our names up before the Father, but also sends down his spirit in order to bless us. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. We cannot be ignorant of his intercession and the value of it for our souls, especially at those times when we feel perplexed by the trials and tribulations of this present evil age. Scottish Presbyterian Robert Murray McShane once famously said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He is praying for you. We are not alone in prayer. It's the great hymn, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When we come to the throne of grace, we do not come alone. Our Savior is praying on our behalf. And I love this. The Father will answer every single prayer the Son offers him for us. So why should we be motivated to pray? It's not because it's a duty, though it is. We're motivated because it's a privilege. We pray because prayer has been purchased by Christ on his cross. 
We pray because we have the listening ear of our Heavenly Father. We pray because it's the divine means for supernatural joy. We pray because the Father loves us. And we pray because when we pray, we are never alone. Father, you have given us a gift and we confess that we have not taken advantage of this gift of prayer nearly enough. And we confess maybe we've looked at it wrongly. And still in us, Lord, the, the privilege this is, the sacrifice that was needed for us to pray to you, and that you would grant us a delight in prayer, a delight because of your love for us, an assurance in prayer because the Son is interceding for us as well. We praise you for your love. We thank you that you, because of your love, has given us a love back to you. May we be obedient, but delighting in that obedience. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.